Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We've got some fascinating uh, material to look at and become acquainted with. Uh, Blessed uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich, uh, again, born in 1774, died February of 1824. Uh, This is a most unusual uh, figure in the history of uh, the Catholic faith. Um, She received revelations. uh, She's certainly a mystic. And uh, she was a stigmatist for a while. There were 12 years, I believe, where she ate nothing except Holy Communion. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, Now, what I want to do is get get a little more illustration from her life, which we're going to do, with Scott Smith, who has made uh, the study of her life uh, part of his primary work. So we're going to be talking about that. I'm, I am especially interested in the revelations she received concerning the Gospels. Um, she had plenty of visions, uh, and when, they're, when they were edited, um, the first volume was called The Dolores Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Meditations of Anne Catherine Emmerich. Um, from there, uh, we prepared the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary from the visions of Anna Catherine Emmerich. Uh, that was in eight, uh, 1852 it was published. Uh, this is fascinating stuff. It was John Paul II who declared her blessed. And uh, that was done, again, not too long ago, uh, 2004, October 3rd, 2004. So we're going to learn more. Her feast is uh, February 9th today. And I thought it's a good time to get to know this most unusual uh, woman and uh, stigmatist, ecstatic, uh, Marian visionary, mystic, and find out what we can about her life. So that's coming up. And then we're going to be joined by Dr. Michael New, who will tell us about uh, a retraction of three studies that found the chemical abortions post health risks. This is uh, especially important because those studies were used by a judge in 2023, to suspend FDA approval of mifepristone. So, Michael will be joining us in a few minutes. Right now, though, let us get today's news. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, February 9th. It's the Feast of Anne Catherine Emmerich, and today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A number of Republican lawmakers want the U.S. Attorney General to consider invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Biden from office. The amendment, which many Democrats wanted invoked on Donald Trump during his term of office, allows the removal of a president considered disabled to the degree of not being able to fulfill the responsibilities of the office. A Justice Department report released Thursday characterized Biden as an elderly man with a failing memory. Biden disputed the characterization in a nationally televised address last night. 
Israel is expected to invade the border city of Rafah, which is now the largest refugee camp in Gaza for displaced Palestinians. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is ordering his military to prepare for a civilian evacuation in the city that serves as the main entry for humanitarian aid entering Gaza. A U.S. State Department spokesman said an operation in Rafah is not something that we'd support. And a CDC report says trying to reduce stress and anxiety is a major reason why teens with suspected substance abuse problems are turning to drugs. The report says American teens are experiencing higher levels of anxiety, depression, and hopelessness. Nearly three in four teens surveyed said they used drugs to feel mellow, calm, or relaxed. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest is uh, Dr. Michael New. He's assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's also a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Luzer Institute and a Page Comstock Cunningham Fellow at Americans United for Life. Uh, this week, Sage Publications announced that it was retracting three studies that found that chemical abortions pose health risks. Let's find out what this is about. Michael, good to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Let's let's take a look at this. Um, th- these were s- the studies that they are retracting are significant studies, and they actually had they made a, a difference in our understanding of chemical abortion. So why don't you tell me the story? Yeah, sure. I mean, these studies uh, went through a proper peer review, you know, process at a competitive academic journal. Uh, they used data from uh, on Medicaid recipients, and they show that women who obtain chemical abortions are more likely to have hospital visits, specifically emergency room visits, uh, than women who obtain surgical abortions or the population as a whole. So I think it was pretty solid data. Again, it was a comprehensive database of women who are on Medicaid. Yeah. And it did show that you know, when these women do, in fact, get chemical abortions, uh, they just had a higher rate of multiple hospital visits uh, than other women. Yeah, you but know, they, they, yeah. they claimed that you know, they're... Proper, I'm sorry, yeah. It was used, proper statistical techniques were used. It went through a proper peer review process uh, and was published. Yeah. And it was cited in ongoing litigation about regulations concerning uh, the health risks of chemical abortion. So uh, it was a well-done piece of research, but through a proper peer review process, was published, and has been cited in the litigation involving uh, chemical abortion pills and their regulations. Yeah. Now, the, the one, one complaint about the studies is that the lead author didn't declare a conflict of interest. Tell me, what are they talking about? Well, I find this extremely puzzling. That, uh, the lead author is James Stadnicki. He is the vice president and director of data analytics at the Lozier Institute. In all of these publications, his Lozier affiliation is spelled out clearly, you know, front and center. Uh, I don't know what more they could have wanted him to do. Yeah. And the co-authors made their affiliation clear. I mean, he had co-authors with Lozier. He had a co-author with the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. He had a co-author with the Elliott Institute. 
this is all clear. Uh, in fact, uh, I can even send your listeners, you know, the link to the retracted studies. Their affiliations are clearly listed on the front page of the paper. Wow. So I have absolutely no idea why Sage is claiming they didn't cite conflicts of interest. That is just you know, absurd. Um, another claim is, and again, some of these are fairly technical. This was raised by an outside scholar, according to the article that you wrote. And uh, these include whether multiple emergency room visits are evidence of abortion complications or rather of other pre-existing health problems. Uh, was that considered uh, in the study? Well, I think that the authors did consider that as a limitation, and I think did you know, make that clear. Uh, but here's you know, my, the situation there. You don't typically retract studies because of a difference of opinion among scholars or on some you know, technical grounds. Studies are retracted because there's you know, blatant misrepresentation of data mm-hmm. or falsification of data. Right. The fact that two scholars are disagreeing, that's not you know, justification for retracting this entire study. I mean, I think a far, far better approach is let this individual write a response. You know, the nice thing about academic publishing is that when you get a journal article published, you make the data publicly available to other researchers. Right. This individual could use the data and run his own analysis yep. and get it published. Yep. And the academic community could go back and forth and decide on their own who has a more compelling argument. I mean, uh, some of the concerns that are raised, you know, are perhaps interesting, but they don't justify the retraction of the article. Uh, how transparent has Sage Publications been about their rationale for retracting these studies? They have not been, you know, I think, very transparent at all. Uh, you know, they are very vague and discuss kind of methodological concerns, but they don't themselves make public the dialogue they had between themselves and James Stadnicki and his team at Lozier. I mean, that dialogue actually is available uh, on the Lozier Institute website if people are interested if people are going to want to kind of learn more about this, if you just go to assaultonscience.org, uh, that's a website we've launched, and all the correspondence and the articles are there for anybody who wants to read them. Uh, but Sage has just talked vaguely about conflicts of interest and methodological concerns. They have not really spelled out any great detail, you know, what their concerns actually really are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, um, even even if there were a, quote, conflict of interest, uh, you still have the study to deal with <laughs> and the methodology of the study, you know, um, and the conclusions of the study. So, Right. You know, and again, you know, I just think that uh, to just you know, retract these studies and retract them all at the same time, you know, about a month before oral arguments before the Supreme Court involving chemical abortion pill regulations, again, in my opinion, just shows that this journal is kind of prioritizing their support for legal abortion and placing a greater priority on that instead of public health and high-quality research. Yeah, yeah. That's a shame. Uh, what, do you, what do you think flows from this? Are there other steps that can be taken to reinstate those studies? How, 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 where do you go from here? Uh, I'm not really sure what entirely our team has planned. I would recommend just submitting these studies to other journals, uh, I mean, there are many places and many venues uh, for academic publishing. I do find, uh, just talk to other pro academics, foreign journals are often a little more amenable to these kinds of studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, the pro movement overseas is relatively weak, and uh, 
foreign editors just don't really feel quote unquote threatened. Yeah, as such. yeah, right. Uh, so right. The pro-life position is a bit more marginalized in other countries than it is in the United States. Um, you know, I would also you know invite the critic to write a kind of public response uh, to that would address you know the concerns. You know, I think we should show that we're open to dialogue and debate. You know, that we're not really scared of this guy. You know, I think you know we should allow him to air his concerns publicly and write a response. I think with debate and dialogue would improve, you know, public knowledge and improve public health, perhaps. I mean, those are steps I would take. Let me, let me switch gears to another story, if you don't mind. I, I, I think you're well aware of it. And this is the story of the remains of the D.C. aborted babies. Uh, apparently, they're going to be destroyed with no chance of autopsy. Um, the Department of Justice has instructed them to um, the, the, instructed the D.C. medical examiner to destroy the remains uh, of these babies. Um, you know, some are claiming that these babies are evidence of federal crimes. And so, tell me what you can about this. Right earlier this week, um, you know, I actually know the two women who recovered the remains of these children. Um, they're Lauren Handy and Teresa McCovenick. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both helped me with the pro-life sidewalk counseling ministry outside the D.C. Planned Parenthood. They were sidewalk counseling outside a late-term abortion facility and were able to recover the remains of these five kind of fully formed unborn children and 150 other children who were tragically killed that were um, earlier gestation. And um, again, after some back and forth, uh, they surrendered the remains of these five fully formed unborn children to the D.C. police. And they've been in custody in the D.C. medical examiner's office uh, for the past couple of years now, I guess. And what they learned earlier this week that there were plans to destroy the remains. There's never been an investigation. You know, a looks based on their appearance that they may have been born alive and killed, which mm. is illegal. They may be victims of partial birth abortion, which would also be illegal. Right. Uh, but thankfully, you know, Congress did take action. Uh, that, you know, Capitol Hill switchboards did light up. Uh, a lot of pro-life groups did get involved. And we did receive now word that at least an injunction has been issued, and the remains of these children, at least for the time being, will be preserved. Oh. So it's been two long years, uh, very little action. You know, these children deserve a proper autopsy. Uh, the DCC government has really dragged its feet. But we did win a, you know, a partial victory this week. Uh, the remains will be preserved, and it's just our hope that uh, there will be a full autopsy and there will be some justice for these, these children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the group... Um that obtained the remains of these aborted babies back in March of 2022, I understand is a secular pro-life group. I, I'm, not, I'm unfamiliar with them, so what can you tell me? Yep, they're a group called Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. They were launched by my good friend Teresa Bukovinek a few years ago. Uh, Teresa is an atheist. Uh, she considers herself politically liberal on a range of issues, but she's very pro-life. And she's always wanted to organize and amplify the voice of you know, pro-life liberals mm-hmm. and pro-life progressives. And uh, she's done an admirable job. I mean, she does a lot of very good street-level activism. Her and her team assist with, uh, again, the sidewalk counseling ministry yeah. uh, outside the D.C. Planned Parenthood. And uh, you know, she's been very good about trying to put pressure on the Democratic Party to uh, you know, consider the voices and the thoughts and the opinions of pro-life people. And again, they were sidewalk counseling outside this late term of facility. They did recover the remains of these children. It was truly, you know, life-changing for them. Uh, they were able to arrange for a burial of uh, 150 who were, you know, at a younger age in field development. Uh, but again, the five uh, that were fully formed uh, were taken by the police. And again, we're at least happy that uh, 
you know, their remains will be preserved. And again, we just hope for a full autopsy and hopefully a, a justice for them. Yeah. No, very, very good and very important. Uh, a story which I don't think is getting a lot of attention. So I'm glad that we were able to uh, discuss it. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Michael, for being with me. Uh, you do a great job for us here. And um, stay in touch. Uh, let us know how we can, uh, you know, broadcast some new news, okay? Will do. Thanks All for right. having me. Dr. Michael New is Assistant Professor of Practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's a Senior Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a Paige Comstack Cunningham Fellow at Americans United for Life. Uh, this, this first story that we were talking about, with Sage Publications announcing that it was retracting three studies that found that chemical abortions pose health risks. Now, the, the primary author of these studies, in fact, was James Studnicki, the vice president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Uh, th- this, is, this is listed right there, uh, you know, on the uh, front page of each study. You know, this wasn't hidden. Um, so when this, when they claim that there was a, an unstated conflict of interest, you have to say, well, what are you talking about? Uh, our organization, the Charlotte Lozier Institute does research, uh, and we happen to be pro-life, but our research stands or falls, you know, with the, the, the whether we have a great methodology or not, you know, you, you, you can critique us, critique the study. Don't claim that we're not letting you know who we are, because we are. And if the study stands, the study stands. If you find flaws in it, well, get rid of it. But don't just say, because a pro-life organization, uh, again, was involved in leading this study, don't say it's, it's worthless. Judge the study on its own. And now... The EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for those who are suffering with Parkinson's disease. Lord Jesus Christ, consolation of the afflicted, you are our refuge. We pray for those who are suffering the effects of Parkinson's disease. As they lose their physical strength and abilities, increase their spiritual strength and abilities. Renew their inner spirit day after day, and through their share in your sufferings, give the grace of conversion to sinners. And their weakness, reveal your strength. Give peace and joy to those who care for them. Amen. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? The Catholic Catechism emphatically states that neither the Jews of Jesus' time nor the Jews of our time should be considered rejected or accursed as a consequence of the Lord's passion. Not all the Jews in the religious hierarchy were opposed to him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were two prominent men who were secret disciples. The Acts of the Apostles notes that many priests were obedient to the faith and some belonged to the party of the Pharisees. 
St. James reported to St. Paul that many thousands believed in the Lord and were also zealous for the law. The religious authorities were not in unanimity as to what to do with Jesus. The Pharisees threatened excommunication to his followers. The Sanhedrin, having declared him a blasphemer but without power to execute, turned him over to the Romans as a political anarchist. The Catechism cautions we must leave judgment as to the participants in Jesus' trial to God alone. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today we commemorate uh, the life of Anne Catherine Emmerich, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. Uh, she was born in 1774, died February 9th, 1824. She was uh, an Augustinian nun, uh, a stigmatist, a mystic, a visionary. Um, and also there are reports that uh, though she was bedridden for most of her adult life, uh, she was also able to survive for 12 years on nothing more than Holy Communion. And uh, joining us right now to talk about her life and also what we can learn uh, from her uh, visions is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, here's Scott Smith. Uh, Scott is a Catholic attorney author, theologian. He's the editor of Pray the Rosary with Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich and author of, with Father Joseph Calloway, of the Consecration to St. Joseph for Children and Families. He hosts the Catholic Nerds podcast, and you can visit uh, 
thescottsmithblog.com and follow him on X at scottsmith8100. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, let's talk about this re- remarkable woman, and um, she she was declared blessed by uh, St. John Paul II. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about her uh, upbringing. Yeah, I, she is a fascinating person. She, despite seeing the gospel in such vivid detail, she was practically illiterate. She had the Bible, uh, the catechism that was available to her at the time, and not much else. Uh, she was, she worked hard as a young girl. She was a shepherdess, a seamstress. She, I th- think, developed a deep personal well of emotion and, and strength mm-hmm. that, because through most of her life, she was sick, not just because she was experiencing what she's experiencing, but she was prone to, to frailty and to sickness. Yeah. And yeah, her, her life is, is beautiful. I, she, you said she's an Augustinian, which is interesting. She, it wasn't her first choice to be an Augustinian. She tried to, to be admitted to the convent several times, but her family's so poor they couldn't afford the dowry for her to enter. Oh, so she eventually became an Augustinian, and and that under the promise that she would learn to play the organ, <laughs> so that she could contribute something. <laughs> Do we know how, how good an organ player she was? <laughs> well, there is a funny story, or well, I don't know, funny may not be the word, but she went. She was sent to live with an organist and his family to learn that trade, to learn how to be an organist. And that family was so poor, and she took such great pity on them that she was bringing food from her own poor family to feed them. So I don't know if she succeeded in becoming an organist. Okay. Uh, tell me about the visions, which is probably what she's most uh, known for. Um how, do we know how the visions started, and do we know if she had a sense? Was she was she aware of some sort of commission that she had to uh, supplement or enhance uh, the gospels? She she does tell how even as a child, uh, holy men and women uh, that were holy men and women saints were visiting her uh, from a very early age and. And interesting, she would often say, well, I guess other children are just more modest than I am because she assumed that other children were having these same experiences. <laughs> she didn't realize that, no, this is very special. Right. Uh, special like Joan of Arc, you know, re- receiving these uh, elocutions at, at an early age. And I think the her visions of the passion are extremely powerful I think that's why so many people have come to know her through Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, because mm-hmm. he took so much from her visions. Uh, one in particular, after the scourging of, of Christ, you have Pilate's wife giving a bundle of linens to the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. And Emmerich says that maybe maybe Pilate's wife thought that she uh, that Christ was going to be released soon and that he would be dressed in these linens. But... Uh, that was not to be the case, and the Blessed Mother took these linens not as intended. She took them, and as was depicted in Mel Gibson's movie, she takes them, wipes the uh, wipes the blood from yeah. near the pillar, which is just such a, a beautiful scene of 
of motherhood. Absolutely. Uh, and, and concern for the most precious blood of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that was, that was remarkable. And uh, it's, it's good to know uh, the source uh, for that uh, story. Uh, were there other aspects of the movie, Gibson's uh, Passion of the Christ, that are as directly taken from uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich's work? I, I was uh, reflecting on the, the, the Via Della Rosa portion yes. of, um, you know, of Calvary, of mm-hmm. Christ walking. Um, what, is, what I would love, this, this isn't exactly an answer to your question, but what I would love for Mel Gibson to do is depict this, the crucifixion of the lambs that went concurrent, that went parallel mm. with the crucifixion of Christ. Yes. And you see that throughout, it's beautiful, you see this throughout Emmerich's writing of the, the Passion, what was happening to the lambs at that time. Hmm. And wow. one of the things that's striking is that the reason that Christ, according to Emmerich, was forced down the, a, a tight alleyway uh, was because of all the crowds thronging to the temple still needing to sacrifice, to ritually sacrifice their lambs, to crucify them, just as the Lamb of God was going to do in, in the opposite direction. Yes, yes. And that's, that's beautiful. You see the lambs throughout her, uh, her visions. Um, now, how, how, mu- how much material did she produce, I guess, of the visions? How, many, how much do we have? How many pages? How many volumes? How many words? It's. I think it's a total of four volumes, and each volume's at least four hundred pages. Okay. So we're we're approaching. We're over fifteen hundred pages for wow. sure. It's it's vast, and and I think she's best known through Mel Gibson with her visions of the Passion, but she goes all the way back to Genesis. Her visions extend throughout salvation history, and. Uh-huh. They connect a lot of dots. You know, yeah. we can't necessarily take it as, well, we cannot take it as the Orthodox teaching of the church. Right. Uh, but it's just, it's a beautiful, what could have been. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful speculation. Yeah. Now, what's the role of uh, the poet and romanticist Clemens Brentano? Yeah, Brentano's kind of an interesting figure. I, I wish... I don't know if and Catherine Emmerich had much of an option at that time in terms of poets, but uh, I wish maybe she had had a more respectable um, collaborator. <laughs> okay, <laughs> not that he was not respectable, but he he wasn't exactly uh, beatified himself. Yeah, okay, put it that way. But there is some question as to uh, what is an embellishment and what is uh, pure Emmerich, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I and. Brentano, in his words, and, and what we have from Emmerich, does state that he would write what Emmerich told him, and then they would go back and forth whether he uh, as to his accuracy. Hmm. So, I'd like to I'd like to take it um, as at face value, uh, but it is a it is certainly a question that was brought up during her beatific, beatification process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did her well, did her reputation spread far and wide during her lifetime? I wouldn't say it spread very during her lifetime. I think her 
people were coming to her because she could identify uh, sicknesses. She could identify the, the pathology of sicknesses. Um, the government under Joseph Bonaparte there, she was in Germany and Westphalia, and, and Joseph Bonaparte was set up there by Napoleon. Uh, he sent a government commission to study her stick to study her stigmata, which mm-hmm. had been at that point ongoing for about twenty years. Wow! And yeah, it's 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 amazing what she endured. And during that time, I think like Padre Pio, she was asking that this be taken from her. You know, this it wasn't something that she wanted, and right. it wasn't something that she wanted was using to elevate herself by yeah. any means. But this government commission sent by Joseph Bonaparte's government uh, was was really rough on her. They evaluated her, like surveilled her for three weeks. They took her from her sickbed because she was always in just this state of extreme weakness and frailty because of what she was enduring, because of the passion that Christ allowed her to endure in, in her flesh. And they forcefully took her from her bed, put her in this other room where she could be uh, watched and under constant surveillance, 24 hour surveillance to see if she was, you know, self-inflicting the stigmata. Right. Right. And the government commission, it, it was, it was not a nice, it was not a kind commission, but it turned up that you know, what everybody expected that she was completely true and honest. These were not self-inflicted wounds. Wow. No evidence of fraud. None. No. Wow. Um, did the church um, investigate her uh, uh, as to her preternatural gifts, or uh, did the church only begin to investigate her uh, later when her cause was opened? Right, yeah, it took some time before the Diocese of Westphalia in Germany initiated the investigation of beatifying Emmerich, that began in 1892 and continued until the Vatican actually froze the process in 1928 um, because of various reasons. But there are depicting she's very strong in her language about uh, the Eucharist and Mm -hmm. uh, profanations of the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. which I think are very pertinent even today. Um, But her language is strong. And so that may have been part of the reason they froze the beatification process. But when it resumed in 1973 under Pope Paul VI, it was under this caveat that her writings would not be considered as part of her beatification and be what she experienced, her her heroic virtues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And so they're they're kind of leaving the, the... The Vatican doesn't go ahead and endorse... The authenticity of the books written by Brentano, um, but they're interested in uh, her exercise of heroic virtue, uh, and that's that'll be the criteria for her eventual uh, canonization, Uh, and of course the miracles that would accompany it. Scott, hold it there. I hear we have to take a break. We'll be right back. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. 
More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John, chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. When families create daily rituals for playing together, they don't just prioritize creating a joyful family life, they're building a holy family life too. Playing board games and card games, having family movie nights, taking short walks or hikes, shooting hoop, playing catch, doing crafts, and other similar activities aren't just healthy ways families have fun. They're ways Catholic families can teach healthy attitudes toward play. In a world where fun is often equated with sinful or destructive behaviors, family play rituals help parents teach kids healthy, godly ways to enjoy themselves. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We're discussing uh, the life of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, best known uh, for her visions detailed in the Dolores Passion, 
which would later inspire Mel Gibson's blockbuster film, Passion of the Christ. Uh, but there's so much more about her life which is uh, interesting that we've been discussing. And uh, my guest is Scott Smith, a Catholic attorney, uh, author, and theologian who uh, is editor of Pray the Rosary with Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. Uh, so let me just go quickly to two other features of her life uh, that are phenomenal, uh, and that's whether she, in fact, did eat no solid food for 12 years except receiving Holy Communion. Is that true? Yeah, that's true as far as I know. I think it's uh, well testified. I don't, I have not read that in her cause, you know, per okay. se. I've not, um, but yeah, I, not only because she was of such, such holiness, but because she, her stomach couldn't handle anything more than yeah. that. Yeah. She was just in such a weakened state. Wow. And I mean, she, she wrapped her head you know, she's often depicted as her head being yeah. wrapped because yeah, it, it, was, it was when the, the wrappings would come off, it would be all these little tiny uh, red dots just covering the thing uh, because the bleeding from the crown of thorns uh, was just almost constant. And, and 1798, when she, I think she, uh, before she entered the convent, she, uh, Christ appeared to her with two crowns, a crown of roses or the crown of thorns. Mm. And she chose the crown of thorns. And it uh, stayed with her for 20 years. And even when it would close, it would reopen every Good Friday. (laughs) Remarkable. Um, Yeah. And even if you you want me to continue going on, it is a remarkable thing. The uh, the, uh, baby Joseph um, came to her uh, about that crown of thorns. Would you, do you want me to? Yeah, please. No, no, no. Yes. Go right ahead. So I, this is. When Father Calloway and I were collaborating on the consecration of St. Joseph for children and families, uh, Catherine Emmerich was very rich source for, for a lot of that. And one of the, the two things that really strike at my heart with Anne Catherine Emmerich are the thing I can never get through. If I have to read it aloud, uh, her telling of the death of Joseph, hmm. her account of the death of Joseph, I can never uh, read that uh, without crying. It's really? just so touching. You know, for any of us, like I've lost my father, I'm sure many of us have had that experience. It's, you see why he's a patron of a happy death, because you see who surrounds him. Yeah. And that's, that's beautiful. But then uh, when Anne Catherine Emmerich, she says when she's experiencing like the scourging, like we were talking about before, the scourging at the pillar, mm-hmm. and it's just emotionally traumatic experience for everybody, even for her. And she's experiencing much of this in her own body. And when it gets too extreme, and this is just beautiful and touching, uh, a little baby will come to her, Ooh. Uh, a toddler. Yeah. And, and that's baby Joseph. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he will uh, cover up her eyes, you know, if she's trying to continue seeing with his little chubby little hands, <laughs> or he'll put his hands over her ears, uh, either, you know, Jesus wants to take mercy on her, or maybe it's Joseph yeah. that doesn't want her to, wants her to rest from seeing this and experiencing this. Isn't that just a beautiful image? It is. It's unexpected, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Uh, was she, uh, 
is she considered an uh, incorruptible? Well, her body was originally thought to have been taken from its final resting place after mm-hmm. burials. I think after seven years, they um, they re, uh, they disinterred and to check on her body. And at that point, it had not yet. Um, it was still incorrupt at that after seven years. Oh, yeah. Since then, I do not know. Yeah. Would they? Would they? Uh, would they bother uh, exhuming her again? Uh, in light of her cause, or is that not significant? I I wish they would. Um, I I have a sneaking suspicion that she likely would be yeah. corrupt, or yeah. or that even the process. I think good could come from that and healing. And um, so much more than that, though. I, I don't know um, that, you know where the uh, canonization process is right now for her. Okay, I, I think. I'm sorry. Uh, I want to ask about the house of Mary. Uh, when I was in Ephesus uh, a few years ago, I went to the location of the house of Mary, and uh, I, I, you know, it was, a, it was a place where I felt touched. And uh, I'm curious, what is the, uh, the status of that as uh, as the bona fide house of Mary? Right, right. So the, the house of Mary at Ephesus, like you were saying, was was discovered because of uh, her de- of Blessing and Catherine Emmerich's description of it, that it wasn't a house in Ephesus, but maybe three, four miles uphill from it. Okay. And just this beautiful setting of, of an orchard of yellow flowers on the ground, and two multiple priests uh, followed and Catholic Emmerich's description of um, of Mary's house to that location, and it, that was eventually confirmed um, by the Vatican. For but it took a long time. There was a particular nun that uh, this became her life's work and passion to mm-hmm. have uh, this recognized this this place in Ephesus as as the Blessed Mother's house. Okay. And it really it is. Um, it's a scene which I'm sure you know yourself better than I. I've not been there, but it's a scene fitting for a queen. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just I wasn't sure whether the Holy See had taken an official position on it, but I guess uh, uh, Pope Pius XII uh, declared it a holy place, and then it was picked up by Pope John the Twenty Third later, and then Paul the Sixth, John Paul the <laughs> Second, Pope Benedict. They've all yes. visited the house and treated it as a shrine. So. Yeah, that that should that should get us there. I think to <laughs> its authenticity. <laughs> right, right. Um, talk to me about the work that you've done in um, enabling uh, deeper devotion uh, to the Rosary through the work of uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich. Sure, I I saw the I I loved Anne Catherine Emmerich's writings and. Um, I had already put together a book, Pray the Rosary, with John Paul II, uh, with Pope St. John Paul II, taking mm-hmm. his homilies, uh, many of which took place uh, during his Jubilee year at the site of several of the mysteries of the rosary. And uh, I, people enjoyed that, so I was reading Emmerich, I'm like, wow, this, is even, this may be even better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's just so, so visceral, you know, her experience of yeah. these— especially the sorrowful mysteries. 
I think they're all very rich. I think they'll all, uh, her insights into all the mysteries of Rosie will help people put themselves, you know, in the composition of place when you're trying to put yourself in the midst of, of that location, of that event. I think she heard the details, this rich tapestry of details that she paints uh, will help put you there and can't but help consider different aspects of these mysteries. Mm. I think, you know, we read the mysteries in Scripture, and Scripture, is in, it, scripture itself is incredibly rich, mm-hmm. but to really gnaw at Scripture, you need someone like Anne Catherine Emmerich. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, did they ever manage to come up with a worthwhile movie about her life? There was a movie in German, I think that was tasteful and respectful. Um, it's The Pledge, which when you look up The Pledge, uh, if you Google it, there's a lot of American or you know English movies that uh, are also under that <laughs> Come name, up The that Pledge. Way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry I don't have the German name in front of me, but you need to look it up by its German name. Okay. Uh, and it was well acted, and I think uh, an, oh, a beautiful portrayal of her life. Maybe yeah. not perfect, but... Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned uh, her cause, in, you're not sure exactly where they are in uh, the, devel- the development of her cause yet? So, Well, it, it, my thoughts on that are she's been long recognized as more of a conservative uh, uh, figure in church history. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to be, <laughs> you know, without saying too much, I don't think she's a... Uh, the most popular person at this point. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what, what uh, the future holds there. Uh, moods change, and uh, we'll see. Uh, tell me about her passing. Uh, anything that we should be aware of that was uh, exceptional? Yes. Uh, her, her passing... Um, she has there are multiple accounts uh, as you get not uh, to the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, but her biography. Um, there's multiple. She had been so close to death for so long, and there's several visions that she has uh, that aren't necessarily accounted for in the visions books uh, in in her last days. Um, and and we just uh, we just I think she is. Buried on um, the 13th of February is a Friday, the fri- Friday the 13th of February when she was buried. And um, Fridays were always significant days for her mm-hmm. in terms of reliving the, signif- uh, reliving the yeah. suffering of Christ. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering then, with her, so are her, given how sick she was, uh, are experiences from different uh, times in her life when I, I imagine she was thought to be dying multiple times uh, right and so stories surrounding her passing can get conflated uh, over the years and I'm wondering if that's uh, the case I yeah I, I think I think you're right um, I think her level of uh, her her visions 
towards the end of her life, um, she was going in and out of consciousness. Yeah. That it, it you know, it, the, the clarity of her visions may have suffered some in the, in the final, uh, final days of her mm-hmm. life. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, it may, um, may be tough to nail down exactly, um, her final days. Sure. Sure. And, I understand that she was also able to bilocate. Is that well established? Uh, well, what I what I uh, love to, she was able to see so many different locations, contemporary con, con, contemporary locations. Yeah. Um, for example, the um, Santo Anello. Uh, if your listeners are familiar, the wedding ring of yes. uh, Joseph and Mary. She on. She would have visions of Mary and Joseph in their ring on these on a particular day every year, and you would see this throughout her visions that they always corresponded with particular with the liturgical feasts. Hmm. Um, she she was actually she was a better barometer of the liturgical seasons than the bells of the church. <laughs> <laughs> but she she saw all these hands going to the wedding ring, and it's because on that day in that church where the ring is held. Couples were allowed to bless their rings against the ancient ring of Mary and Joseph. Wow. We could talk more about that, but we're out of time. And Scott, thank you for the work you've done and for joining us today. Thank you. Hi, this is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know the single most important document to protect your medical wishes is a healthcare durable power of attorney? Without it, medical decisions may be left to strangers. My Life Angels creates your healthcare durable power of attorney available anywhere on mobile phones and alerts your loved ones if you're ever taken to the hospital emergency room. Use code AVE and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. CMF Curo is a Catholic healthcare ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. My wife Janet's ancestors arrived in America on the Mayflower, but we never knew that the Catholic missionaries arrived in Florida 50 years earlier. Visit the site where the cross was first planted, where Mass was celebrated, and the first Marian shrine in the New World. Renew baptismal vows in the cathedral in its first baptismal font. Hope you can join us in La Florida, the land of flowers. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Mm-hmm. Good afternoon, and uh, 
Let me encourage you uh, to follow up on our conversations today. Uh, we have Peggy's uh, reflections on the gospel reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. That's in the uh, Cresta Guest Archives. You can get over there. And let me also urge you to tune in to Word on Fire Radio Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time uh, to hear Bishop Robert Barron illustrate the truth, beauty, and goodness of Catholicism. And you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. We'll have material there on Anne Catherine Emmerich. We'll also have material on the uh, conviction of Jennifer Cromley for involuntary manslaughter uh, in the de- because her son had committed four murders. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a much discussed uh, parental topic. For days to come. in the afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.